Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording this episode and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Well, here we are. Hi, Janine. Hi, Alina. And hello to you out there. Thanks so much for joining us on episode one of Sister Doctor Squared. And what more pressing topic to begin with in coronavirus? Yes, well, it's undoubtedly the most significant scientific event of 2020, the year we're launching this podcast. It is. And we're going to dive into a little bit of the psychology and biology that we think has some enduring relevance. Well, straight off the bat, I must say that my day-to-day levels of engagement with logistic regression graphs and anxiety has never been higher. Yeah. If we as a society didn't know what exponential growth was in statistical terms before this, we do now. (laughs) Yes. Were you paying attention in high school maths that day? I probably wasn't. (laughs) In any case, let's get going. Janine... Do tell me what research you've got stuck into. Well, I have been getting stuck in quite a few internet vortices and rabbit holes. Uh, That doesn't sound like you at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it just starts innocently enough and then the next thing you know, it's several hours later and with science, there's often more questions than answers, which I find exciting about science, but sometimes Spoken can be- Spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> but sometimes it can be frustrating, particularly when we're dealing with something as serious as COVID-19. So one of the main studies I was really interested to read about was by Guin and colleagues. It was published in the Journal of Virology. Uh, it was published online in April- And the title was Human Leukocyte Antigen Susceptibility Map for SARS-CoV-2, which sounds like a lot of jargon, but I wanted to just break it down and talk about what they found because I think it's fascinating. So what they did was use computer modeling to analyze genetic variation in the human immune system. So the immune system being the part of our body that responds to any foreign threats. So they were particularly interested in this region of the genome known as the human leukocyte antigen, which is what's mentioned in the title. So we'll just call that HLA from here on in. So the HLA is a cluster of genes, and it's actually the most diverse group of genes in the human genome. So there's more diversity in this little stretch of DNA than the rest of the entire genome in all of the human population. Right. So that means there's many, many, many different versions of these genes, And if you remember from high school biology, a different version of a gene is known as an allele. I don't remember much from high school biology. (laughs) Well, so moving on. So there are many different types of these alleles or genes within the population. And even inside each individual, you've got lots of different versions of these genes. Now, what they do is each gene codes for a protein and all genes code for proteins or parts of proteins. So each of these HLA genes codes for a HLA protein and what that protein does is it sits inside individual cells and its whole job is to bind to any foreign particles. And once it does this, it travels to the edge of the cell membrane and sticks the particles up, like waving a warning flag 
so that other parts of the immune system see this warning flag and are activated to trigger lots of the immune response. Okay. Right? Are you following? I'm following. Good. So one type of cell that is activated is called the cytotoxic T cells. Now, when these are triggered, they release proteins and enzymes, and what they actually do is just lies or split open the infected cells. So they just kind of explode and they're dead, which is good. They also lead to the release of cytokines, which are special chemical messengers, which allow communication among different parts of the immune system. And if that's all happening appropriately, we get an appropriate immune response. Okay. Okay. So now remember that the HLA proteins are the ones that bind to the invader and they present it to the outside of the cell. Do you remember that? I do. And do you remember that the HLA region of the genome is super duper diverse? Yes. So can you start to see why it's really important that that part of the genome is diverse? Mm. Yes, because we want to maximize the chance that we've got lots and lots of different versions of these proteins so that they've got a higher chance of being able to bind to whatever foreign thing comes in. Okay. Right. So now back to the study, what they did is use computer modeling to investigate how well different versions of these HLA genes can bind specifically to COVID-19. And now remember, it's a novel virus. The human species has never seen it before. Mm. So we do have the genome of coronavirus. Interestingly, it is 30,000 bases long, which only codes for 15 genes. So 15 genes have turned the whole world upside down, which is pretty crazy. Wow. As a comparison, the human genome is 3.3 billion base pairs long and around 20,000 genes are encoded for. So what this means is that we can determine from those 15 genes that the virus contains what actual proteins the virus makes and therefore what could be in the body that the HLA proteins could bind to. So what they have managed to find all through this computer modeling is that some of the HLA alleles that are circulating in the human population bind quite well to COVID-19. So you probably then hopefully see an appropriate immune response. But other HLA alleles are actually quite crap at it. So what you could say is that in some individuals, their immune system is maladapted to this particular novel virus. Okay. So I think this is really interesting because we can see evolution in action Mm. and we can all reflect on the fact that we're all part of the genetic lottery and that differences that we all have within us maybe have no effect on us whatsoever, and then all of a sudden there's a novel virus or something new, and it can become maladaptive. Mm, Genetic lottery. So it sounds like, Mm. you know, to an extent we know there are various risk factors for COVID. Mm. So we know what they are, but to some extent, as you said, there's a lottery. We can't predict necessarily how someone's going to react to this infection. Exactly. And I think these sorts of studies are starting to explain why some people were hearing all these reports from families saying they were perfectly healthy. They were never sick. They were perfectly fine. And then they've just been hit with this virus and they've died. Mm. And you can start to see why maybe there's some of these sorts of mechanisms going Mm. on. And maybe all other viruses they've come across up until that point, their body's been really effective at dealing with. Yeah, so, you know, we know some high-risk people, but nobody nobody's immune to this. Exactly. And, and I wanted to point out that this is just one factor at play. There's so much research going on. 
and it's providing new insights into why this virus is having these effects. It's not as simple as what I've outlined. It's just one factor. Um, another study, if I have time to go into. Of I? course. I mean, like you were saying, there, there's just enormous amounts of research being pumped out every day around coronavirus mm. and, and that's great. And, you know, there's so much to sift through and we're just, we're just touching on a tiny bit of it here. So yeah, go ahead. Yes, exactly. So this was another study by Blanco Mello and colleagues, and it was published in the journal Cell, and the title was Imbalanced Host Response to SARS-CoV-2 Drives Development of COVID-19. Now, this is providing more insight into some of the other factors that are at play. Okay. So what they found is that if they got the coronavirus in the lab, in a lab situation, and they subjected it to this signaling protein called interferon, which is produced in all of our bodies as part of our immune response. So they add the interferon to the COVID-19 virus, and it is effective. The COVID-19 virus is impacted by the interferon like other viruses are. So you're sort of seeing a normal initial response. But however, when they're looking at the bodies of certain people who are getting a severe illness from this virus, they're not mounting the mm-hmm. levels of interferon that they should. So the interferon works, but they're not actually producing enough or okay. very much at all yet. So what they're finding is that COVID-19 within those 15 proteins, remember it has 15 genes for 15 proteins, within those 15, one of them seems to encode a protein which blocks the action of some of our proteins. Okay. So it's sort of getting in there first and blocking our immune system from doing what it normally would do. Oh, sneaky. But a lot of viruses have these things. So that's not the end of the story either. Flu has them. Other coronaviruses like common cold, they seem to have them too. So it's very interesting that it's part of the story, but it's not explaining everything Mm. either. Then they found another abnormal thing happening. So while the initial response is not happening or too low, completely independently, there seems to be an upregulation of the release of things called cytokines. So now these are chemical messengers within our immune system too, and they cause the activation of other immune cells. But what can happen is that once cytokines are around, they can trigger the release of more cytokines. Mm. And you can get into this really nasty positive feedback loop, which is helpful to a point at which it can become really dangerous, and that's called the cytokine yes. storm. You may have seen that in the news yes. a little bit. So that's when you're getting too much cytokine and it's causing really, really severe inflammation in the body and can actually start to cause tissue damage, particularly in the lung tissue, seems mm. to be happening in COVID-19, and that's why people are getting pneumonia and having really severe breathing difficulties. Yeah, and this is why, you know, they say, well, it, it's the case that the people who are dying from COVID-19, it's, it's not the disease itself, but it's what their body has done in response mm. to the disease that's actually killing that's them. That's right. So exactly, it really could explain why older people and people with pre-existing conditions seem to be particularly at risk because they may already have a delayed immune response in general. So it's maybe it's even more and more delayed because of these interesting findings. And um, particularly in diabetes and obesity, there is well-known research showing that they have higher levels of general inflammation in mm. their body. So now we've got an amplification of that on top of an already amplified situation. Right. Yeah. So Fuel to the fire. Exactly. So many different factors at play. 
And I read about four other studies that provided other insights into what's going on, but it's certainly very complicated and the immune system is really interesting and so complicated. It's like every single part is talking to other parts and they're all talking to other parts and it's like this orchestra and it's it's not linear. You can't just say this causes this, which causes this. No, that's There's right. There's everything integrated and at play. So it is going to take time to unravel what's going on. I think for me, I wanted to say that the bottom line, which you already alluded to, Alina, is that everyone really is at risk. And some of these studies start to say why. That if you have a pre-existing condition, you certainly are at higher risk. But even if you don't, you just don't know. You don't know. We don't have the mechanisms at the moment to have a look at your genome and figure out whether you're more susceptible or not. Mm. Maybe those sorts of things may happen in time. But at this point, the only real protection is to maintain social distancing and be strict about it until we really know more or have some sort of susceptibility screening or effective treatments. Mm. And, you know, even if you do get a mild case, you still have the ability to pass it on to someone who could have disastrous outcomes. So it's just, you know, we've just got to suck it up and just do the right thing. Keep learning as much as we can. Do the right thing. Do Don't the be right gambling thing. with your health or with the health of others. That's right. You know, this this leads me into uh, one of the studies that I read about and what brought me to this was Christian Porter. So he is, as you know, he's Australia's Attorney General and he was being interviewed about mm. the issue of casual workers and, you know, during lockdown uh, when we're, we're encouraging people, of course, to stay at home when they're sick, for casual workers they've mm. got an incentive to go to work because that's how they make money. And mm. if they are sick, encouraging them to, to stay at home is, of course, what we need to be doing, but um, what supports are in place for them. Mm. In any case, he's being interviewed about this and, you know, what are we going to do? What are we, how are we going to ensure that casual workers don't go to work if they're sick? And he was very much confident that it's a non-issue. He thinks everybody's going to be doing the right thing. We understand the risks. And I thought, well, that's nice, but oh, is there any <laughs> evidence around this? What can we learn from other crises in our in our world to know? Mm. Do people act in pro-social ways during crisis times or not? And I found some interesting study, an interesting study by Andreas Kappers, excuse pronunciation, uh, and colleagues. It was published in Nature Human Behavior in 2018. And this looked at uncertainty about the impact of our social decisions and how this affects behavior. And it really gets right at that question about people going to work when they're sick. Mm. So before I talk about this study, there, there is a distinction here between the outcome of social decisions and the impact of social decisions. So the outcome being, if I do this, then what's going to happen to this other person? So what is the outcome in absolute terms? And then impact being, well, if that happens, how bad will it be for that mm. person? So what is the impact in terms of degree? And this, is, this difference is important because it turns out that when there's uncertainty about the outcome of a social decision, we're more likely to act selfishly. Mm. And when there's uncertainty about the impact of a social decision, we're more likely to act pro-socially. Ah. 
So let me unpack this study now. Um, And they did this study specifically in the context of infectious diseases, as I mentioned. So they had a group of participants and they were asked to imagine the following scenario. I'm going to read this verbatim now. Mm -hmm. So the scenario was eight days after you arrived back from a lovely safari trip to Tanzania, Africa. (laughs) You feel unwell, feverish and dizzy. You go to the doctor and learn that you have the African flu. Mm. The doctor warns you that African flu is contagious. People you come into contact with may get infected. However, you still feel able to do your work and you really want to go to the office to finish a project that is important for your career. So that was a scenario and the researchers varied the certainty of the impact of that decision between the groups. So in the first group the impact of the decision was uncertain. Mm. Here, participants were told that there was a chance they would infect co-workers, but that these co-workers would barely suffer because they're healthy and not hugely vulnerable to the African flu. Mm. But that there's also a chance that they would infect some very vulnerable co-workers and that these co-workers would suffer severely from the African flu. So that was the first group. And then the second group, the impact of the decision was certain and it was bad. Mm. So, so here the participants were told most co-workers were vulnerable and hence if they went to work, they would most likely infect a vulnerable person and cause them severe harm. Mm-hmm. And then there was a control group. So here the participants weren't given any information about the vulnerability of their co-workers. So the participants had one of these three scenarios and they were asked how likely they would be to go to work. Can I just just interrupt and just say... I'll allow it. I just, if I'm sick, I just won't go. (laughs) I don't need any more information, but I guess... It's I mean, put yourself in this position, though, where there's just this thing you really want to get done. You're so motivated to get it done and it's going to help your career. So you've got to think, think put yourself mm. in these shoes if you want to be a pseudo participant in this study. Okay. okay? Continue. I mean, I'm with you, but anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> what the researchers found was that when the impact of the decision was definitely bad, And when the impact of the decision was uncertain, participants were significantly less likely to intend to go to work compared to when there was just no information. Mm -hmm. So if there was a chance that they would infect a vulnerable co-worker, even if it was uncertain, they were less likely to go to work. Mm. And then there was no difference in the likelihood of going to work between the group where they were definitely going to infect vulnerable people yep. and the group where there was just a chance that they would infect uh, yeah. vulnerable people. That's good. So it is. So, you know, uncertainty about social decisions seems to drive pro-social behaviour. So that's nice, you know. Yeah, so if we relate these findings to the current pandemic, it does seem like the majority of people who are sick or who have been asked to quarantine are doing so. But it's been interesting that a large minority have not been doing this. Yes, and Mm. I'm glad you raised this because really importantly, of course, this study is measuring behavioural intentions, not Mm. actual behaviour. And those two things can sometimes or, well, often be very different. Uh, What people say they would do in a situation is one thing and what they actually do is another. Mm. So there's definitely a social desirability bias in a study like this. And 
as you've said, we've seen some concerning data from at least parts of Australia, but I'm sure it's happened elsewhere too, about how long people have waited to get tested and that people did go to work while awaiting test results. So I think it's still important to study people's behavioral intentions and we can learn something from this. But as I said, there are many other factors at play and insecure and underemployment and effective support for people to enable them to do the right thing, mm. quote unquote, as we say, is is right up there and so important. So yes. Christian Porter's comments, well, we've got some evidence now, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're certainly going to learn a lot about human behaviour from this event in history alone, if we can see this as a silver lining, I guess. Uh, and I would say it also brings to the surface many issues that are in our society. And a lot of these issues have been there for a long time, but are really now front and centre. Mm. That seems like a good time to go to a break. There's something else we need to talk about. Yes. It's toilet paper. <laughs> of course. Toilet paper. It's 2020, the great international toilet paper shortage of <laughs> history. Now, Do you know Australians were the worst in the whole world? Oh, that's something for us to <laughs> hang our hat on. Well done, Aussies. <laughs> well done. Look, I just, I'm fascinated by this mm. because it makes, I guess, intellectual, emotional sense that people might panic by soaps hand sanitizers, mm, mm. cleaning products, you know, these things may may actually prevent them from yes, contracting the virus. have a direct impact on the virus. Yes. Yes. So why toilet paper, Janine? <laughs> why toilet paper? There's actually no supply problem of toilet paper in countries like Australia and the US. But it turns out it doesn't take much to cause a mass panic of buying behaviour. Yes. The mere suggestion of a shortage compels people to hit the mm. shops and buy in bulk, which of course causes a true shortage, and then the talk about the shortage is reinforced. That's right. So in some ways it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm. Now, this is fascinating. There was uh, in 1973 a U.S. congressman put out a press release warning of a potential shortage in toilet paper in the U.S., <laughs> and this this was based on him receiving some complaints from the community about mm -hmm. a shortage. Mm -hmm. Now, in reality, there was no threat to America's supply of toilet paper. <laughs> and from what I understand, his comments were in reference to commercial-grade toilet paper uh, and not, not toilet paper for families and households. Yes. Now, the press release he put out, warning of this potential shortage didn't receive much media traction mm. until Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show made a joke <laughs> oh, about no. this alleged potential maybe possibly down the track <laughs> shortage of toilet paper. And after that, in the days to follow, people emptied the shelves of toilet oh, paper really? in the States. Mm. They did. So all from essentially a joke, people panic bought. Then there was a shortage. Mm. Then they panic bought some more and there actually was a shortage. So it's fascinating. We take our cues from others. Yes. And, 
you know, some of those people, probably a lot of them, never even saw The Tonight Show, had any information about a toilet paper shortage that was credible in any way. Yes. But, you know, those images we see of empty shelves creates this visceral reaction in us that it completely overrides rational thinking. So why? I wanted to know if there's some research on this. And I did find a study by Charlene Chen and colleagues published mm-hmm. in the Journal of Consumer Research in 2017. Mm. And this was looking at feelings of control and how this affects purchasing of utilitarian products. So these are products mm. that have some pragmatic, mm-hmm. practical, necessary value rather than products that are just pretty uh, or provide some temporary enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So I think kind of like Basically, with- it's useful. <laughs> it's not yeah. an impulse buy, it's it's a necessary no. buy. No. So mm. when I buy another scarf for my collection, <laughs> this is not a utilitarian <laughs> purchase. Yes. I get that. Okay. <laughs> this is what they call a hedonic purchase. <laughs> and I'm fine with it. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> so now the premise in this study is that We all like to think and feel that we have some level of control Mm. over our environment. This is just human nature, right? Mm. And when we don't have a sense of this control, it's deeply uncomfortable for us. Mm. We don't like this. And we feel compelled to do something to restore those feelings of control. This is called the compensatory control theory. Mm. So what do we do? We problem solve. (laughs) This can be quite a comforting strategy because when we engage in problem solving, it reinforces our belief that we can exert some control over our environment. Mm. Now, since utilitarian products have some practical need-meeting value, they can be seen as tools of problem solving. Mm -hmm. And there's been some research done that, that does show that, yes, people associate utilitarian products but not hedonic products with problem solving. So these researchers hypothesize that people who perceive a loss of control would be more likely to buy utilitarian products than people who didn't perceive any loss of control. Uh, and so that would- the need to get toilet paper is an extension of the need to control a very anxiety-producing situation. Yes. Mm, I get that. And so they hypothesize that and that there would be no difference in purchasing hedonic products because these aren't satisfying that need for control. They're just satisfying my need to have another scarf. Yeah. So they tested this in a real-life environment. So they went to a supermarket and invited shoppers as they were entering the store to participate in a study. But before they could shop, the participants were asked to complete a writing task, uh, (laughs) quote-unquote, uh, uh, but this was really designed to manipulate the participants' sense of control before they shopped. So the participants were randomly assigned to either the low control or high control group. Those in the low control group were asked to recall and write about an incident where they had experienced a loss of control. And those in the high control group wrote about an incident where they had a sense of heightened control. Mm-hmm. Then they went off and did their shopping. And when they were finished their shopping, the researchers collected everybody's receipts to see what they had purchased. Mm. And they found that, as predicted, the low-control participants purchased significantly more utilitarian products than did the high-control participants. Mm. And there was no difference in the purchase of hedonic products. 
so this was just one of the experiments in this paper. I'm not going to talk about them all, but they did do another three complementary experiments to really validate these findings and the hypothesis underneath it. Mm. And in one, they also measured people's inherent, more generalized tendency to engage in problem solving in their day-to-day lives. So I think I would score highly on this. <laughs> um, just saying. And they found that this tendency really is a mediator for the relationship between feelings of control and purchasing behavior. In other words, natural tendency to problem solve is indeed what's driving people to purchase utilitarian products under Mm. feelings of loss of control. Yeah, so it's not as it was sort of portrayed in some instances as people being selfish or horrible. It is, it's anxiety. It's anxiety and Another thing was that the participants in the low control group spent more money and this was driven by the purchasing of more utilitarian products, yeah. of course. Mm. Um, I would like to say on toilet paper that we subscribe to a toilet paper service. We've been doing this for several years now. It's a social enterprise and they donate a lot of their profits to building toilets in the third world. We've been supporting it for a long time. It's awesome and we Look, get this is not a commercial rolls. podcast, but <laughs> I'm not very saying prepared to give – oh, come on, let's just do it. <laughs> I'm very much prepared to give a shout-out to Who Gives a Crap. Yeah, it's Who but Gives a Crap. Giving a crap. Yeah, well, I give a crap. I would like to I say give I a do crap. give a crap and I've been buying 48 rolls of toilet paper at a time for honestly like oh, over five years. Anyway, I was so stressed about the delivery of our toilet paper and what the neighbours would think. Yes. <laughs> because they weren't to know that I've always been doing this. They're like, oh, look at her hoarding toilet paper. Yes. <laughs> Oh, exact same thing happened to me when when our box of forty eight rolls arrived, and we the, we've got this ritual where they get stacked up in the um, top shelf of a cupboard. So one of us yes. has to stand up on a chair while the other passes the rolls, and we're just very in this very you know neat little teamwork, teamwork. effort of getting the toilet paper neatly stacked. And the neighbours, they could see through the window. Could and they I really? was nervous. Well, no, I don't know if they were looking, but if they were, they could have. And I was nervous about what would they think? They could just see us hoarding toilet paper. <laughs> no, I'm not hoarding. I just give a crap. No, we, we do this once every, I don't know how often we get mm. that many rolls of toilet paper. Mm. But as we were just saying, how, how does – hoarding toilet paper solve problems related to COVID-19. How is it effective really in us regaining this sense of control in the midst of a pandemic? Well, it turns out that we're not real picky about where we get this sense of control from. We just really need it. Yeah, so if we can't gain a sense of control over the thing that's initially caused the feelings of loss of control, coronavirus, then it's like the next best thing is to gain some control over something else, even if it's unrelated. Yes, it just gives that feeling, a semblance of control, I feel a bit better about the situation. Yeah, you're feeling anxious and uncertain about coronavirus. You can't solve that no. problem, but you can anticipate other problems, like running out of loo roll, <laughs> and that's a problem you can yeah. solve. <laughs> And buying some more toilet paper gives you that sense of control and at least in that moment it's like you feel better. Yes. Well, can I just say, as you were speaking about toilet paper and crises, I was reminded by the Y2K book. <laughs> now, 
Yes, this is. I yes, was this is in uh, what two thousand. So I was final year of high school, and I distinctly remember all of the panicking around what's going to happen with Y two K, and how so many things are going to not work, and society will be turned on its head. And I was really anxious, and I very clearly remember there being a warning that the toilet systems may not work. Something may <laughs> malfunction, and the toilets won't work. <laughs> I don't and know why I'm laughing. I was like, what am I going to do? Do I have to dig a hole outside? And I was freaking out. So when um, when this started. You don't need that stress in your 12s. No, and I remember just thinking in the last few months, like maybe there is something around going to the toilet that is part of our need for control just generally because I really was very stressed about digging a hole in the backyard. Oh, if only we could interview Freud because Freud would have a whole lot to say about Mm. this and I think definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, what brought out your inner square this week, Alina? Well, look, we have decided to adopt a cat and so we've been learning a lot about Mm. cats and looking after a cat inside the home because, of course, that's where the cat will Mm. be. There will be no cats venturing outside causing destruction to our natural good um, because i would not be supporting that no i'm aware of that (laughs) you know my feelings Um, on this issue i do she's made it very clear (laughs) you just don't like cats at all i don't like cats when they're not in the part of the earth they evolve well that's fair Well, this cat certainly won't be in the part of the earth that it evolved, <laughs> but it will be confined to the indoor space. Good. So the only destruction she may cause will probably be to the furniture. Yep. I'm okay with that. So, yeah, oh, we have to be as well. Now, what's the nerdy thing that I learned? Well, it turns out that cats are very picky about their um, toileting behaviors. Oh, more about toilets. I mean, I mean, this should be I the mean, toilet. This whole episode is about <laughs> toileting. Is. Yeah, that's a well-known fact. Cats are very picky about. Oh, I didn't know that toileting practices. Mm. But so I didn't realize that if you have a cat inside, it's recommended that you provide them with not one but two kitty litter trays. Right. Because they like to have a choice. <laughs> Hang on, do they need a they sense just- of control too? <laughs> Yes. Well, it's yes, choice is one aspect of control. And they do. They just need to have it and you need they need to be different in some way. So and you you need to be very careful about where they're positioned. So they don't they don't want to go to the toilet near where they eat. Um, well, that's fair enough. I thought it makes perfect sense. So that's yeah, that's what I nerded out on. Mm, cat behavior, cat toileting behavior specifically. Well, I brought, my inner square was brought out mainly when I was investigating all these papers around coronavirus and just getting sucked into one rabbit hole after another. Um, but I was really excited when I started reading about transcription factors, which I know you're very will be very excited to hear about. <laughs> oh, sorry, what? I just walked away for a moment. <laughs> Look. I could be wrong, but I'm not sure this is going to be appropriate material for the inner square segment. But I really got my square on. I'm sure that you did, but we're meant to be keeping this bit light. 
And it sounds to me like you're about to start tutoring us in biology again. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, I guess I'll allow it this time. But remember that I talked about the feline psychology of going to the toilet. <laughs> So I was expecting you to talk about something equivalent to cat poo. <laughs> um, well, this is literally all I have prepared this time. <laughs> okay, so continue with your transcription factors. Okay, good. So as I was saying, I thought you'd be very excited to hear that my inner square came out when I was reading about transcription factors this week because it came up in one of the papers I was reading. And the reason I was getting excited is that I'm currently tutoring some year 12 biology students and we've been learning about transcription factors. And I was really excited to see them mentioned in papers around coronavirus and super excited to share it with my students, who I know will be probably very disinterested, but I'm excited see, about it anyway. I'm a psychology slash health and medicine person and I, to me it sounds like you're talking about when I conduct an interview or a focus group and then I need to type up the oh. recorded what was said. That's transcription. <laughs> what well, are we talking actually, about here? It is actually related to that process. So let me explain. You have your genes, your genes code for proteins. In order to move it from being in genetic code into protein code, we have to go through transcription and translation. Do you remember that from school? No. <laughs> transcription is changing the DNA code into mRNA, but it's transcription because it's the same language. We're still in the DNA language, DNA, RNA, nucleic acid. Oh. Then we need to translate from the RNA into protein. So we're, it's the same message, but we're changing the language. So that's why it's called translation. And so a transcription factor is this protein that binds onto the DNA and enables the um, enzymes to actually make the RNA. So it's a step in that process between going from gene to protein. And this transcription factor protein binds to the DNA and lets it all happen. If it doesn't bind, the protein can't be made. So it seems like there's some, some of the things that are going on with coronavirus is that transcription factors that we need to turn on aren't be al being allowed to turn right. on. Yeah. So I was super excited because we've been learning that in, in my sessions. So I'll be sharing some of that primary research with my students who probably will never even look at it, but I'm excited to show them. <laughs> uh, don't, you know, don't take me as any indication of interest and um, motivation for that kind of thing. <laughs> I think you, you, you forget that although I'm extremely studious and exceptionally <laughs> hardworking and um, creative and articulate now... <laughs> was not this way there was in high school time that's true i i actually remember that quite well yes i just needed to remind you of that fact i on the other hand have always been studious so much so you that have. my favorite thing is learn my favorite thing is learning and my whole job now is helping other people with their learning it's, you have it's who i am I know. And on a serious note, you are you are inspiring to me. And you, you know, you know what, listeners? Janine is the reason that I went to university. That's true. Because she inspired me to do that. Well, I just I just know people can do it. People can do more than they think, and they've got to get out of their own head and just start getting t taught how to do it, and then they can do it. And I never would have 
even considered doing a PhD <laughs> if it wasn't for you. But, you know, I will say on that, when I was in high school, I didn't even know what a PhD was. No, neither did I. I, did, I was like, well, there's a doctor who's someone who is at the medical centre and that's that. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not like I've always been destined for this. Not that I believe in that. Anyway. Well, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think we should wrap up. Yes. Thank you for getting your square on with us today. Now, if you want to connect with us, if you have a question, something you'd like us to investigate, or want to know more about the research we've discussed, head along to our website. It's www.sisterdoctorsquare.com with all words spelt in full. And we'd love to hear from you. And thanks, Janine. I enjoyed that. But I've had enough now. <laughs> Thank you very well, much. Well, that's that then. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.